Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to History at a Gallop. 1638-1641, The Search for Peace. This covers the period dealt with in eight episodes, 369-376, to when it all began to get quite detailed, political and namey. So quite a few folks have got lost. Just a reminder, you do not need to listen to this episode at all. You can keep simply to the numbered detailed episodes but if you do want a refresher or a sneak preview even of the themes of the period and you don't mind plot spoilers then at a gallop is for you last time we heard about the personal rule of charles the first or the 11 years tyranny depending on your viewpoint we heard how charles managed to rule without parliament by carefully controlling costs and raising all sorts of weird and wonderful taxes He indulged few of the pastime of kings, no war, playing only at happy families, admiring Henrietta Maria's extravagant masks, collecting and patronising art, and encouraging his mate William Lord and his bishops in taking his church to a more beautiful, ceremonial and formal hue. In 1638, England was at peace. You might ask how long it would last, his financial exactions, the rigour and brutality with which he imposed ecclesiastical and financial compliance through the courts of High Commission and Star Chamber had made him deeply unpopular. But if his reign had primed the gun of England with the gunpowder of outrage, yet there was no figure pulling the trigger. After a couple of minutes listening to this episode, you might wonder at the title, The Search for Peace, because there's going to be quite a lot of arguing going on, quite a bit of conflict. Although the trigger would come in 1638, today we're going to talk about a period where all the English Parliament was saying was, 
give peace a chance. And for a long time, that seemed to be happening. So, it was from Scotland that came the trigger. I need to be brutally short with the Scottish Revolution, which is in itself a fascinating story. So I hope you will go to episodes 369 and 370 to hear all about the events and some of the personalities, including Jenny Geddes, after whom I believe Robbie Burns named his horse. The long and short was that in 1636, Charles tried to impose his Laudian church vision on Scotland, complete with English canon law and a Scottish Book of Common Prayer. This in a country determined not to become a province of England. This in a country that prided itself on its perfect kirk and a view of religion wildly different to Charles's, often radically Calvinist, determined to outlaw bishops and implement a full Presbyterian model of local consistories without what they saw as a papist hierarchy of bishops. Despite multiple protests, Charles would not compromise until effectively the Scots took the law into their own hands. They drew up and signed a Confession of Faith, the National Covenant, which was sworn to in parish communities up and down the land throughout Scotland. And they threatened to radically curtail royal power and prepared to raise an army to resist what they knew was coming. Now, Charles's view of all this was simple and it was uncompromising. The Scots were rebels and must be reduced to obedience. For, as he said to his friend and main Scottish adviser, the Earl of Hamilton, So long as the Covenant is in force, I have no more power in Scotland than as Duke of Venice, which I will die rather than suffer. Well, that could be arranged. It must therefore be war. Charles must raise an army. And surely, with the wealth of England about six or times bigger than Scotland, that should be a gimme. There were several problems with this, though. The Scots had a wealth of experience from individuals seeking their fortune in the Thirty Years' War. They were well-armed, highly enthusiastic about their cause, and their army was led by a talented general in Alexander Leslie. Meanwhile, England might be wealthy, but Charles refused to recall Parliament in order to access that wealth, so he scrabbled around with forced loans and customs dues and managed to raise some sort of army. But as I said several problems. Well, the next problem was that there were plenty of people in England who might recognise that fighting the Scot was both a pleasurable and a natural pastime for them. But on this occasion, well, they rather sympathised with them, especially with their religious complaints. As one good English Calvinist said with deep sarcasm, we must needs go against the Scots for not being idolatrous and we'll have no mass amongst them. So the army that rocked up was poorly trained, poorly equipped and both poorly and unenthusiastically led. Not only unenthusiastic either, for amongst the English there were many who said to themselves, Maha! This is just the opportunity we've been looking for and rubbed their hands with glee and twiddled their little moustachios. These are the people who had cheered when the speaker was held down in his chair, who had lit bonfires and rung the bells when the petition of right was proclaimed, who had worked with Hamden to refuse ship money, who had wept when William Prynne was mutilated by order of the High Commission and honest John Lilburn was whipped through London at the arse of a cart. Without Parliament, resistance had no way of organising itself. If the Scots won and Charles lost, 
Well, the king must then call a parliament to raise more money, so the Scots must win. There's a word for this. What is it?、Uh, oh yes, treason, rebellion. It seems that some of these people were talking to the Scots already, trying to prevent the raising of militia in England, giving away the king's military secrets. Naughty, I think you will agree. Well, with the nobility around him all wearing long faces and muttering that the Scots were going to kirk their asses, when Charles looked through the telescope at the Scottish army, cleverly deployed on Dunn's Law to look like thirty thousand men, not fifteen thousand men, he bottled it. And accepted the Scottish plea for a truce and talks. So then there was agreed. Well, I'm not quite sure what you'd call the pacification of Berwick of June 1639. To be honest, truce, I suppose. No one really thought this business was finished yet. Anyway, Charles promised to come up and be at the next gem- general assembly of the Kirk and the next Parliament when things maybe would be finished and sorted out. Well, it turns out Charles felt he had other, more important engagements in his diary when that actually happened. I don't know, looking at another Rubens or hanging the odd Van Dyck or whatever. So he didn't go, and he sent messages to dissolve the Parliament that started anyway, and we'd have it sometime. The Scots simply said,、mm, "No, not this time," and they went straight ahead, abolishing bishops, the Book of Common Prayers as well, and doing some fantastically radical things, like saying that their Parliament got to decide when it started and ended. Not the king, and the acts and new laws didn't need the king's consent anyway. Really, the Scottish Revolution is, initially at least, every bit as radical, and I cannot believe the English didn't pick up some tips. So, that was that. Charles's head exploded, and in a right old paddy, he had the proclamations of the Scots publicly burned, and declared them all rebels, foul and horrid treason. I think were the actual words. There are a couple of things I'd like you to take away about the Scots and their influence on the English Revolution. They had a highly effective army and tax-raising capability, and so punched consistently above their weight. Having carried out their revolution, they were now obsessed, rightly, about future security. If Charles could re-establish control in England, he could use her wealth to come north, give the Covenanters a kicking. Execute the rebels in horrid ways, and reimpose bishops and the Book of Common Prayer. So, what happens in England is critical for the Scots. They want their form of Christianity imposed in England, so there's no reason for reversion to Lord, and they want Charles shackled. They are not disinterested observers. From now on, there would be Scottish commissioners in London, spreading their religious word, building alliances, keeping a close eye on the politics. Now, after the first bishops' war, Charles had a problem. Raising an army had been tricky. Raising money for a second bishops' war would be a nightmare. First off, Charles realised he needed his right-hand man at his. Well, at his right hand. So he recalled Thomas Wentworth, a lieutenant in Ireland, to come home and made him Earl of Strafford as soon as he did. Strafford put a rod of iron up the collective backside of the Privy Council. Obviously, I'm talking metaphorically here, just to make that clear. He successfully managed to persuade the Irish Parliament to vote subsidies to allow him to raise an army of nine thousand men in Ireland. Now, this Irish army 
is hugely significant, or its existence is. It will be regularly referred to. The English reformers will be constantly looking over their shoulders, worried that the king will bring this Irish army over and use it to defeat the Scots and visit tyranny on the English. However, even Strafford could see that life would be much easier here if an English parliament could vote some enormous sums of money. And so, taking a deep breath and muttering curses, Charles called a parliament and the 11 years' tyranny was over. Well, everyone in the country was absolutely uberglücklich. In Somerset, the local JP noted that the announcement begat much joy amongst all the country people. It has to be said, there were others who were not quite so keen, and this is where, from being rather appalled at William Lord's arrogance and insensitivity in imposing religious change on a largely unwilling population, I now begin to feel rather sorry for the lad, because there's little doubt he believed he was acting for the best and he now saw writing on the wall. As soon as he heard there was a parliament, he knew he was heading toastwards, and he wrote... It would be destroyed the very first day of the sitting. Well, this is where I need to introduce you to the junto. In the mainstream of the podcast, this is a word that caused some distress. So, let me scotch the head of this snake from the start, if that's what you do with snakes' heads. The word is not junto. It is a word derived from the same root as the Spanish word junta, which is the Latin word junctum, acting together. Anyway, so, the junto. This is a group of reformers who will actively drive for radical change. Charles had always believed in a small group of malignants in Parliament, and he's not entirely wrong, but he was wrong in dismissing them as mere rebels. These people believed what they were doing was for the good of the Commonwealth every bit as much as he did. They were led by a group of peers. Robert Rich, the Earl of Warwick, preeminent amongst them, but also William Fiennes, who was Lord Say and Seal, who would become known by Charles as Old Subtlety, and in particular, the Earl of Bedford. Now, Bedford will be particularly important in this first phase. The networks of these powerful men extended widely. Directly in contact with them were people like John Hamden of the ship money case. Oliver Sinjin, his lawyer at that case. But the name to remember most of all is John Pym, a West Country lawyer and a client of Warwick. He will be the face of the junto in Parliament and control events. His links were also wide. A good friend of the deeply political and influential Lucy Hay, for example, who was continually bringing back tidbits of news from the court from Henrietta Maria's household. The Junto had an agenda, just as Charles did. It was critical to them that Charles did not succeed in this short parliament to raise money on only mild promises which would allow him to fund an army and defeat the Scots without making substantial political and religious concessions. The army of the Scots was the Junto's only leverage, the only thing which forced the king to the table. So the king then must be shackled to parliament so that the Eleven Years' Tyranny could not reoccur. It was essential that Lordianism was rolled back and the Church of Elizabeth restored, the real one, not Charles's fictionalised view of what that meant. So in effect, 
What they needed was this parliament to fail, so that the king could be forced in the next parliament, after being drubbed again by the Scots, to make real, lasting concessions. They could not, however, be seen to be rebels, so they had to make a failed parliament look like Charles's fault. Essentially, as the historian Conrad Russell put it, they had to hope that Charles would not prove too flexible. You might like to know that Russell then went on to add, and not for the first time, he did everything they could have hoped from him. Because the first Parliament of 1640 is known to history as the Short Parliament, John Pym stood up and for two hours laid out the Junto's programme, and it was clear both Commons and the House of Lords were four square behind him. Charles just wanted money in return for only vague promises, and so three weeks later. He gave up and dissolved Parliament in disgust. In the name of Christ, go! At this stage, Strafford came to the fore. He dominated the Privy Council. He told Charles what he wanted to hear. Go vigorously, he said, advising an aggressive war to reduce the Scots and reminding him, "You have an army in Ireland. You may employ here to reduce this kingdom." Raising money and an army was even harder this time round. The London Common Council refused point blank to offer a loan a second time. Sir Charles and Strafford took to trying to force individual aldermen into contributing, and some gave way, but some defied the king openly and in the courts. Meanwhile, the apprentices rioted over religion and sacked Lambeth Palace, home of the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. London itself was divided between a largely royalist elite and an up-and-coming religiously radical merchant class. The streets of London and their control will be critical to the fortunes of the reformers. However, it was done. The king managed to raise the money and set up court in the fair city of York, and the Second Bishops' War was on. It resulted in a Scottish victory at Newburn. Once more. Members of the junto probably helped the Scots in their campaign, and twelve English peers launched a petition demanding a parliament. Instead, Charles gave them a noble council, a magnum concilium, just like the old days of Billy the Conch. He and Strafford demanded the tools to continue this war against the Scots from the peers, but they would not wear it. The peers forced them to accept reality, and instead. A deal was done. The Scottish army would stay in the north of England at Newcastle until a full deal was written down by them with the king in consultation in London, and once it was then agreed by an English Parliament to make sure it was permanent. And meanwhile, the English would pay the Scots eight hundred and fifty quid a day for the privilege—a remorseless engine forcing the king to compromise. There are a couple of interesting wrinkles here. Firstly, there's a trend in this: the peers and the political nation of England beginning to take executive decisions. Normally, of course, the jealously guarded preserve of the monarch, who had been until now the only source of executive power. That is a trend that will increase, of the political nation extending its sphere of competence almost as though the king was mad or incapable. The junto had achieved their aim. There would be a parliament; otherwise, the king could never get rid of the Scottish dirk at his throat. And this time, the king must surely be forced to make real concessions to the demands of the Commonwealth. Well, the elections for the second parliament in the autumn were a good deal wilder than the earlier ones. 
There is a line of thought that says Charles had missed his very last chance for a relatively easy settlement because the House of Commons elected now was much more radical than the earlier one and most court MPs failed to win votes to get elected from the unruly masses. One Conservative MP complained of a general feeling of chaos in the country, a general feeling that Charles's refusal to accept Parliament meant that his government was no longer legitimate, and he wrote, Common people were bound to think themselves loose and absolved from all government when they could see that which they so much venerated so easily subverted. The streets of London were humming. Scottish preachers were welcomed and masses of radical Protestants flocked to hear them speak. Unemployed, unpaid soldiers, meanwhile called reformados, were everywhere blaming Parliament for their lack of pay and shouting for the cause of the King. It's all a bit of a to-do. At the same time, expectations flew higher than a small orbital satellite. We dream now of nothing more than a golden age. As Parliament convened, it might seem that Charles, figuratively speaking, lay secured, fastened to a barrel. But Charles most assuredly did not see himself like that, and he had an ace in the hole. He had an absolute veto. Without his explicit consent, no decisions could be made. It would only be after many years, many negotiations and an effusion of blood that someone would finally contemplate cutting that particular Gordian knot and removing the king from the equation with an axe. Charles, in fact, had broadly three options. The moderates at court urged him to cooperate in a mild programme of reform, minimise the damage. Or... He could fight reform on the floor of Parliament, build a party there. The Lords would always be more sympathetic, so he had a good chance there. But he could come down from the mountain, get his hands dirty, start becoming a party manager, build a party within the Commons. But his third option came from Strafford. Strafford's plan was that if you want to be absolute, be absolute. His plan was for Charles to take control of the Tower of London, arrest the leaders of the Junto, execute them for treason on the grounds of collaboration with the Scots. I think this is important. Pym and the Junto realised full well that it was either them or Strafford. One of them had to go, and now. One point also worth remembering here was that there had been no enlightenment before the English Revolution, no John Locke or Thomas Paine or Montesquieu or Wollstonecraft. There were no ideas kicking about around what the ideal new society might look like. No principle that had been doing the rounds and gained universal acceptance. No examples for successful revolutions to follow. The reformers saw things through the prism of the past. They wanted to restore peace, not make war. They didn't come to Parliament with a worked-up programme, no end point, no new society in mind. They liked the old one. They wanted that one back, please. It had to evolve, step by painful step, always harking back and hoping for the old ways, for peace. Having said that, they did know what the first steps needed to be, and hopefully you'll go to episode 373 to hear all the drama. But step one was to right the wrongs of the personal rule. 
Pym, of course, opened proceedings on the 7th of November, 1640, after all the royal verbiage had been done and laid out the great wrongs, secular and religious. And the victims of tyranny must be freed. So the streets were rammed with ecstatic, cheering well-wishers when William Prynne was released from prison and he and his colleagues marched into London through the crowds, bells ringing throughout the city, still bearing the mutilations inflicted by the High Commission. Next, Oliver Cromwell petitioned Parliament to release John Lilburn, victim of the Star Chamber, and another blow for justice was served. But it was Strafford, Strafford that was the threat. Pym knew that he was closeted now with the king. The plans were moving forward. This danger must be dealt with and quickly. Once more, it was to impeachment that Pym and the Junto turned. A motion was proposed to impeach Strafford into the Commons, with a request then to the Lords to have him immediately imprisoned while specific charges were prepared. Impeachment alone wasn't enough. Strafford needed to be removed straight away to prison so that he was completely neutralised and could implement no counter-revolution. The proposal was passed with a massive majority in the Commons, absolutely no problem whatsoever, and it was sent to the Lords while Strafford was still in with the King, unknowing. By the time he returned to the Lords, it was too late. He was forced to kneel and judgment was given to him. He was not only impeached, but ordered straight to jail while charges were prepared. He had been removed from the board. On the 25th of November, he was taken through to the tower through jeering crowds, delirious, the downfall of the man they condemned as full of cruelty and blood. Not until December was the other villain of the piece sent the same way, William Lord. Charles's closest champions had now been removed. More and more, he would now turn to Henrietta Maria for advice. Now, the Junto were themselves divided on what next. It was a tricky political situation, and in some ways they reflected in the Junto the shades of different opinion in the House of Commons. As I've mentioned, the Commons was firmly Calvinist, so even the most kindly disposed towards the King wanted those Laudian reforms unwound and the regular role of Parliament restored to provide the voice of the people. But some wanted more radical and deeper reform of both church and state, which would fundamentally change the nature of the English Commonwealth, both in religious practice and balance of power between people and king. Politics and radical Protestantism don't always go together in this, but they are often linked, and a good example of how they're linked comes through the example of Catherine Chidley and the rise of independency. So it is one of the most remarkable things about William Lord that in his desire to establish a more formal and ceremonial church, he inadvertently revived and unleashed a radical Protestantism that had seemed dead, that had learned to accept the compromises of the Elizabethan and Jacobean church. One of these was Presbyterianism, linking with the demands of the Scots to remodel the governance of a national church to one which was still fiercely uniform but without the hierarchy of the bishops and based instead on local elders, which was also deeply involved in regulating behaviour and morality. But another form of Protestantism went much further. The group of beliefs known as independency or congregationalism 
which rejected both bishops and hierarchy and also rejected uniformity. Each congregation would find its way to God while resolutely resisting the evils of the Antichrist, the Pope, of course, and being firmly based on the Bible. Curiously, independency, the form of religion favoured by Cromwell, led to a level of religious toleration most unusual in Christendom at the time. After all, each congregation was to find their own way to God. Independents like Catherine Chidley and indeed Cromwell believed themselves to be socially very conservative. Certainly Chidley accepted the contemporary attitudes to women, which now look deeply misogynistic to us. But the liberation of that belief that everyone had a right to find their way to Christ, albeit rigorously through the word as revealed in the Bible, was actually very socially subversive. So, Catherine Chidley dared to write a long, closely argued and passionate tract in 1641 challenging the views of a Presbyterian divine, a male Presbyterian divine. She might accept the doctrine of men's control of secular affairs, but they had no such overlordship in matters of conscience. She might accept the traditional social hierarchy, but not in matters of conscience. Everyone had an equal right to found their own church, as she wrote. Whether they be tailors, felt makers, button makers, tent makers, shepherds or ploughmen, or what honest trade soever. You can hear more about Catherine Chidley, the rise of the independence and some of the various roles women took in the civil wars in episode 375. Anyway, so, suddenly, deleting bishops was a hot, hot and very public topic, a situation unthinkable just a few years before, where the streets of London will reverberate with protests against their existence or their involvement in politics in any way. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. So, back to the Junto then. There were some in the Junto Warwick in particular who were strongly, religiously, and politically radical. Religion was to be radically remodelled and the king must be forced into a relationship which made him impossible to govern without the people and parliament. But preeminent at this time in the Junto was the Earl of Bedford. He most strongly influenced and controlled John Pym and Oliver St. John, and he looked for a moderate way, which re-established a commonwealth based around king and parliament, rolled back Lordianism, but which took care to retain Calvinist bishops so as not to disrupt the Commonwealth throughout the country where the Church of England held the love of the majority as a fair balance between Calvinist theology and ceremony reminiscent of the older church. In a way, Bedford was a child of the patriot faction of Jacobean times, Protestant, strongly anti-Spanish, strongly in favour of a partnership between King and Parliament. And for the moment it was Bedford who ruled, with a desire to work with Charles to arrive at a peaceful compromise. But he trod a difficult line between the radicals in Parliament and in Scotland and the King's absolutist instincts. However, he had some allies. Around Charles, two advisers appeared to be encouraging his moderation. The Earl of Hamilton was one, who had seen from personal painful experience where the King's refusal to compromise had landed him in Scotland, Abject defeat, basically. And 
Henrietta Maria. Now, in later years, she will be a fierce proponent of reducing rebels to obedience, pushing Jake Charles on. But throughout 1641, she was the voice of conciliation, supporting Bedford in his efforts at court. And so matters proceeded through December and into January 1641 and into February, and the cause of reform appeared to be moving forward. Charles seemed to be accepting reforms proposed by the Parliament. Pym and Bedford had developed plan. The king's evil councillors must be replaced by good Commonwealth men. Mm. Members of the junto, let's say. Lordian reforms must be rolled back. Political reform must embed Parliament in the Constitution. Absolute primacy in matters of taxation. The removal of the tools of tyranny lessening royal influence in the judiciary, the abolition of star chamber and courts of high commission, and, more radically, the rejection of the king's right to dissolve parliament willy-nilly. It led to the contentious triennial bill, which laid down that parliaments must sit at least every three years, whether the king wanted it or whether the king did not want it. Now, if these reforms could be achieved, Royal finances could be restored and placed on a firmer, more permanent basis. That's the deal, King Baby. Outside Parliament, many were much more radical. Parliament encouraged petitions from around the country and they poured into London, signed by vast numbers. In London, the movement for abolition of the bishops and radical church reform grew to almost uncontrollable levels. It acquired a name, Root and Branch. An enormous root and branch petition signed by 15,000 Londoners was marched through the streets and presented to the House. A debate was promised in Parliament. For the Junto, these people demanding religious and political reform were their greatest supporters, but also the greatest danger to peace. Because there, and the demands of the Scots for the end of bishops, would never be accepted by Charles even if he could be persuaded to roll back Laudian reforms, and that was a big if. Religious radicals stood to destroy this chance for a compromised peace. Compromise with Charles proceeded, or appeared to, and Bedford's plan seemed to be working. A peace agreement was worked out with the Scots. I mean, really, the king had no choice. But essentially, he agreed to all their reforms in principle, subject to his assent at a parliament in Edinburgh, which he would attend in August 1641. Charles then began to agree to changes in England. He agreed that judges would no longer sit at the king's pleasure. He sought a fully independent judiciary yet, but the monarch could no longer remove them at will. He appointed a key member of the junto, the lawyer Oliver St. John, to the Privy Council. He then made a speech at the banqueting hall where he announced that he would accept whatever Parliament decided as regards his tax-raising power. Wow! The Commons then received that most rare of beasts, a conciliatory letter from Henrietta Maria. She acknowledged the concerns raised by her very public celebration of the Mass and the large-scale services at Somerset House and the number of high-profile Catholic priests around her and assured them that many were now being sent back to France. In return, when the Root and Branch Bill came before the Commons, demanding abolition of the bishops amongst other reforms, all the key members of the Junto sat on their hands. There can be little doubt that the likes of John Pym in particular would have dearly loved to have seen the bill succeed, but they sat on their hands, 
They did not support it, and it was shelved. They'd kept their part of the bargain with the king. And so, on the 16th of February, 1641, there was one of those bits of theatre beloved of Parliament. Charles came to Parliament himself, and he presented his assent of the Triennial Bill, the requirement for Parliament to sit every three years. And in return, at the bar of the House, the Commons presented a bill for four subsidies to raise tax money for the King. Peace was at hand. Everyone could take a deep breath. Things could get back to the way they were. And then on the 24th of February, a handbill appeared on the streets of London written by the Scots, and indeed by one of the men who had written the Scottish National Covenant. It had been printed and distributed for maximum effect. In it, the Scottish commissioners demanded that the English church be reformed in accordance with the Scottish Kirk and that bishops in England be abolished. Its effect was incendiary. This was exactly what Bedford and the Junto had been delicately tiptoeing around, like some demented Puritan sugar-plum fairies in black tutus and ruffs. This was one of the two things that could derail the carefully constructed piece, and the Scots had gone and put their great clogs in the pie. The Scottish commissioners were duly hauled up in front of Charles, and they watched him go ballistic. The king has run stark mad at it, wrote one of them. While he cannot have been surprised at Charles's reaction, he knew darned well how important that was to him. Whatever Archibald Johnston of Warriston might have been, he wasn't an idiot. And nor would he have been apologetic. An agreement in England that reunited the king with income in a settlement with Parliament on a church based on bishops and a traditional hierarchy was just not in the best interests of the Covenanters. They are very unlikely to have been surprised or unhappy at the large hole punched in the side of the English Compromise. There are some historians who think that it was indeed this moment when Charles started making other plans and abandoned any thoughts of reconciliation. And indeed, there were rumours sweeping London that the King's commander of the army, still in York, remember, had been making plans to attack the Scots at Newcastle. However, it might be harsh to lay all the blame on the Scots for this possibly mortal wound to the hopes of peace. Firstly, it is more than likely that they were, at the time, in cahoots. Accompanying them in said cahoots might well have been the more radical members of the Junto. Warwick's younger brother seems to have been heavily involved in the printing of the handbill, for example. It may be that Bedford and Charles were, in fact, more cahooted against than cahooting. The other thing is that if you were listening carefully, sitting up straight and had brushed your teeth, you might have noticed I said the two things that could derail the carefully constructed peace protest. Because there was, of course, another. The evil counsellor to end all evil counsellors, the evil counsellor to rule them all and plunge them into darkness. Strafford. Now, it may be that Charles was expecting the price of this cautious agreement not only to be the protection of the role of bishops, and he hadn't agreed to the demise of Lordianism yet either, let it be noted, but also the preservation of Strafford as his minister. Almost unbelievably, even in February, with Strafford behind bars and all his three kingdoms baying for his blood, he thought that once he had made it clear that Strafford was his man, just doing his bidding, his subjects would not dare overstep the mark and to go against his express royal command. 
and that just as James had done with Buckingham, when the king made it clear his order was hands off, they would back down. Though, to be honest, not sure the words hands off should apply to James's relationship with Buckingham. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I believe, is what they call double entendre, smutty innuendo. I apologise, it was beneath me. Bedford and Pym laboured hard to present the realities and tried to find the best result they could for as long as possible. John Pym at this time was involved in face-to-face meetings with both Charles and Henrietta Maria, but they were always being optimistic. It's not clear they could ever have held back the tide. But it transpired that Charles wasn't particularly worried about Parliament or the Junto anyway. If convicted at the trial, he would simply pardon Strafford using the royal prerogative. Now, once this became known, even Bedford and Pym recognised there could be no mercy. The king had not accepted the need to pay the required asking price for peace. Strafford must be brought down. Charles must be forced to accept the realities thereby that he could no longer simply wield the prerogative without regard to the wishes and needs of his commonwealth. It was him or them. Well, this is all very well but none of them had figured without the remarkable talents of the object of all of this, Strafford. He was nobody's pushover. On the very day the Scottish handbill against bishops had come out, Strafford was called before the House of Lords and presented with the 28 charges to be made against him and given a chance to consider. Once he had been called in, there was an enormous kerfuffle and red faces all around because unannounced, Charles turned up and no one was wearing their proper robes. So awkward. And he sat throughout the whole proceedings and made it very, very clear of his support, at one point leaning forward and saying for all to hear that Strafford had done him no wrong for aught he knew, and that he had spoken all truth so far as concerned him. The signal for the charges to be dropped, of course. But Pym and the Junto had greater problems for Strafford was brilliant. He even dressed up for the occasion to win the sympathy of the Lords, looking impeccably ill-camped and downtrodden. But he demolished the 28 charges against him with ease and noted, rather cuttingly, that there was no point having such a long list of charges if none of them at all amounted to treason, since having so many of them didn't make it up to treason. Now look, I do hope you'll listen to The Trial of Strafford. It is a fantastic story and you can find it all in episode 376. Over the next month then, Pym and his legal leads, Bulstrode Whitelock and Oliver St. John, laboured on their case. They prepared with enormous care and a month later, the trial date came around, held with maximum publicity in Westminster Hall, a show trial in front of a loud, fractious, noisy crowd, all baying for Strafford's blood, and all the assembled members of Parliament. When Charles and Henrietta Maria arrived, they were refused permission to sit in state in the court, as they were absolutely expected normally to do. Instead, he was shoved into a small room, high up behind the court, behind a screen, so that no one could see him. Charles was so furious, he ripped the screen out of the window. But he needn't have worried. Strafford was superb. He systematically deconstructed the arguments against him, bamboozled many of the witnesses, pulled on the heartstrings when he wept, recalling the death of his wife. It was a BAFTA-winning performance, 
No doubt about it whatsoever. There should have been red roses all over the stage. The best charge Pym and Whitelock had was Strafford's declaration to Charles that you have an army in Ireland you may deploy to reduce this kingdom. The witness who had recorded the phrase lost all memory of the occasion under oath. It became clear anyway that the phrase applied to Scotland, not to England. Seriously, this was a train smash, complete signal failure. At one stage, the Lord sitting in judgment actually burst out laughing when Strafford ridiculed some of the evidence. Even members of the audience began shouting for Strafford. As matters proceeded, Charles was all smiles, clearly delighted. The Venetian ambassador remarked, Strafford will be saved, and wrote of Strafford in the dock that he could not hide his joy. A Strafford acquittal would be disastrous for the credibility of the Junto and the cause of reform. Enter Arthur Hazelrig, the MP from Leicestershire. As things were going pear-shaped in the court of the House of Lords, he introduced a bill of attainder against Strafford into the Commons to execute Strafford for an arbitrary and tyrannical government against law. Now, if the task was a political assassination, this was brilliant. An act of attainder did not require the analysis of proof. MPs and Lords simply had to decide if they believed Strafford to be guilty of the charges. Now, there was no problem at all with that in the Commons, and the Act swam past. But the moderates on the Junto were absolutely horrified with this. This was judicial murder, and it could destroy any chance of compromise with the King. Strafford was not only to be brought down, but executed. Many also disapproved on moral grounds as well as tactical, and men like John Hamden simply stayed away from the vote. But the fear of Strafford and his symbolic significance was way too strong for most. When one of Charles's councillors tried to persuade the Earl of Essex to try to stop all this, that surely it would be sufficient to have Strafford removed from his post, Essex coldly replied to him, Stone dead hath no fellow. Charles began to understand the danger, and that at very least he would be forced to remove Strafford from his post. Not yet had he accepted that Strafford would die. Oh no, not a bit of it. Indeed, on the 23rd of April, he wrote to Strafford with a mega promise. That upon the word of a king, you shall not suffer in life, honour or fortune. Still after the business of the trial, the House of Lords were unconvinced. Maybe Charles was right. Maybe Charles could be saved. Maybe the Lords would vote the attainder down. Into this breach stepped the lefty lawyer, sorry, Junto lawyer, Oliver Sinjin. He made a brilliant speech in front of the Commons, Lords and King all assembled. Unless law prevailed over tyranny, over the King and his councillors' ability to imprison without charge, tax without consent, raise armies against their own people, no one would ever be safe again. Strafford, he said, was a predator and must be dealt with accordingly. It was never accounted either cruelty or foul play to knock foxes and wolves on the head because they are beasts of prey. The whole mood changed. The vote on the Act of Attainder was due on the 1st of May. But Charles was not prepared to lose. In his desperation, he made a dreadful miscalculation. 
In April, a royalist wild boy and poet John Suckling had come to Charles with a plot, an idea to raise a company of soldiers, seize the Tower of London and spring Stratford from jail. And at the same time, another councillor promised Henrietta Maria that the army in York was close to mutiny against Parliament. They blamed Parliament for the lack of their pay. They could be brought down and used to restore the king to authority. Well, the news got out, as news is wont to. On the 1st of May, in a feverish, excitable atmosphere of plot and rumour and counter-rumour in London, Charles ordered Suckling and a 100 men to be given control of the Tower of London. Now, the constable of the Tower refused to admit them against the King's express orders. But the damage was done. Word was out that there was an army plot. The King was seeking to overthrow Parliament. London went bonkers. Shops were closed, crowds gathered, armed men flooded to the Tower to defend it against the King's soldiers. An observer watched it all. In a clap, all the city in alarm, shops closed. A world of people in arms run down to Westminster. In Parliament, there was an air of crisis. Pym stood and announced all that he knew of the plot. The House of Commons responded by appealing to an old, tried and tested demonstration of unity of purpose. A bond, a covenant would be sworn to defend England's true constitution of the rights of Parliament and a king ruling in harmony within it. Within 24 hours, all the members of Parliament, Commons and Lords, had signed the Protestation Oath, as it became known. Within months, it spread around the country. Parishes all over the country gathered together, often men, women and children, together after the Sunday service, to swear to this covenant to preserve the Commonwealth. It is an absolutely astounding, extraordinary display of unity and shared purpose. In many assemblies in the future, protesters would stick a copy of the protestation in their hats to demonstrate their commitment. It's a great story. Do listen to more about it in the episode 378. Charles's attempt to seize control by force had failed and the army plot destroyed his credibility and trust in the Lords. On the 4th of May, therefore, they voted in favour of the actor of attainder. Parliament had demanded Strafford's death. As soon as the bill was passed, it was walked to Whitehall and given to Charles for his assent. Oh, the agonies and the drama. Charles burst into tears in front of his Privy Council, searching for a way out of this horror. To refuse was surely impossible, would surely lead to violence. But assent would mean breaking his word and defiling his conscience on the promise he'd made to Strafford. Take this cup of poison from my lips. From the tower, Strafford bravely wrote to his king, Sir, to you I can give up life of this world with all the cheerfulness imaginable. But actually, he probably never imagined Charles would do it, because at the same time, he tried to bribe the constable to leave the door of his cell open and let him slip out. But Charles had nowhere to turn. He was beaten. He signed. When Bulstrode Whitelock took in the news, Strafford was amazed, asked again for confirmation, and on receiving it, turned to a handy biblical quote. But not your trust in princes, nor the sons of men, for in them there is no salvation. 
Parliament wasted no time. Within days, scaffolds and seating had been constructed. London was heaving with people, all come to see the hated tyrant Strafford die. The Venetian ambassador marvelled at the crowds. Two hundred thousand, he claimed. Certainly wrong, but basically a lot. As you might expect, Strafford died well. He refused the protection of a coach, and he walked proudly through the baying mob. As he passed through the gatehouse of the tower, his friend Lord reached his hands through the bars and blessed him. Am I getting sentimental? I'm feeling a lump in my throat. I have to tell you, on the scaffold, as everyone looked breathlessly on, he did the normal immortal soul preparation, and then spoke, including the words, "I wish every man would lay his hand on his heart and seriously consider whether the beginning of the people's happiness should be written in letters of blood." He presented his neck for testing, and the axe found it wanting. God save the king! The crowd roared its approval. William Lord, after he released his friend's hands, sat back down in his room. Maybe he remembered the times he and Strafford had exchanged scrawled notes, mocking the treasurer for his fussing over expenditure in privy council meetings. They'd had a code name for him: Lady Mora, Lady Delay. His jailer heard his bitter complaint that Strafford had died because he served a king who knew not how to be or be made great. And in Whitehall, Charles was in agony and might well have agreed with Lord's judgment at that moment. Much later, he would confide to his friend Hamilton that he believed all the troubles that had come on him were God's punishment for this betrayal of his friend and servant. There was no room now for compromise with the junto. There could only be victory or defeat. As it happens, the architect of the piece, the Earl of Bedford, lay dying, victim of a sudden disease, and so did not see Strafford die. If he had, he would have seen his hopes for peace die with him. There we are, ladies and gentlemen. Next time we hear how, in the aftermath of the army plot, Pym and Parliament push the reform program forward. Charles appeals to yield. But had he really been defeated, or did he ever other new councils? Before I leave, let me remind you of the core episodes, but also that you can listen to all my podcasts free of adverts and access over a hundred hours of extra of my shedcasts by becoming a member at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Also, you would thereby support my work and make me happy, which is surely a good thing. Capital G, capital T. That's thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Until next time, then. Thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck, and have a great week. A new year is full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable: postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. 
schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.